Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian Gottlieb, and we have a modern tier list for you. I know there were a lot of shakeups in the last few weeks, and people are still trying to figure things out first. But yeah, we have to do these preview cards. You say that like it's a bad thing. Jerry, preview season is the best season I am excited to talk about Modern 2. Don't get me wrong. I think it's time for the definitive tier list. I'm happy to provide that to our listeners. But again, a lot of cool cards being spoiled over the last few days and very impactful ones too. Cards that are going to reach back to possibly all formats, quite frankly. There's good stuff here. We're getting into the really exciting parts of Throne of Eldraine at this point. Yeah, and we got, uh, looks like, 11 cards because I added a card. Yep. Yeah, we don't we don't want to go super deep. We did every card spoiled last week, and we've heard you. We don't just want to go hard, nothing but previews for an entire month. But some of these cards are too exciting not to talk about. And I definitely wanted to check in here before we move on to our modern tier list. And so we don't goof like I did last week on the live show. These are all officially previewed cards, correct? That is correct. We're pulling them <laughs> from our uh, our favorite search engine over at Scryfall. And uh, they only feature the officially previewed cards. Wonderful. I just want to make sure. So we we ready to go? Ready to rumble? Let's let's do it. What you got for me? First up, we have Charming Prince. This is one dub for a 2-2 human noble. When this enters the battlefield, choose one. Scry two, you gain three life. Or exile another target creature you control or own, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's important. Brain auto-completed there. Return it to the battlefield under your control at the beginning of the next end step. So, as most charms are, an extremely, extremely modal card tied on to a body that has that so important creature type. No, or not noble, excuse me. Human <laughs> is the important one here. Um, not too many nobles in magic thus far. But, but yeah, a human. So all those tribal synergies that we always have to keep track of are at play and the third clause on charming prince prince the ability to exile another target creature you own first of all if you get access to that at instant speed it becomes very very good it becomes a way of removal proofing your creatures as we know humans of course a deck that plays ether vial and can play this card at instant speed also humans is a deck which is just stacked with comes into play abilities be it reflector mage be it thalia's lieutenant be it just resetting your meddling mage to a more impactful card at the present moment i i think this is a pretty good inclusion for the modern humans deck and then as far as standard goes it's just a very versatile card. I don't know that's going to shine quite as brightly without its synergies. Like, quite frankly, a lot of these rely on the surrounding context to be very impactful on the game state. And this is just a 2-2. So until I get some more synergies in standard, I'm not over the moon about Charming Prince there. But I think this is a slam dunk for the Modern Humans deck. Uh, slam dunk, do you mean like a 2 of? Yes. Okay. Slam dunk in those flex slots. I don't think this changes the paradigm and you go to four charming prints, but those slots that are always, always open for debate, it feels like they might be full-time filled by charming prints. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I I would basically never play this before I play the fourth phantasmal image. Mm -hmm. And I know that a lot of people only play three of that card a decent amount of the time, but yeah, I mean, obviously the, the blink is good. Two mana for a 2-2 body is not super exciting, so I don't think you're going to be seeing this in any white aggressive deck. This is more of a mid-range card, which I think is 
definitely worth noting. You know, scry, gain life, and blink your thing for value are all things that are way more at home in mid-range than aggro. Right. So overall, pretty solid card, role player. Uh, definitely interested to see what kind of things we can blink in standard. And also if there are any other versions of this effect that can allow you to, you know, play like eight of this sort of thing and just go ham with it. Mm, good point. Yeah, when you have those redundant effects, that's when things can really take off. And then a card like this, also, you have to be mindful of combo potential. What can you get up to? Can you establish loops where you're always getting back charming princes? And there could be something there as well. So we'll have to see how this one develops. But uh, a card I'm keeping my eye on a little bit higher, though, in the eternal formats than just as a pure standard card. Yeah, completely legit. And since you have to choose one, there's no like LSV crashing moto nonsense where you just blink two of these repeatedly. So that's right. that's a nice like built in thing. There's no uh, emergency errata like we had with hostage taker or anything. So mm-hmm. uh, next up, we have hypnotic sprite, which is a creature and an adventure. The adventure is to you instant counter target spell with CMC three or less. And it is a UU for a 2-1 fairy with flying. Neither side, super exciting. But I think the package together is worth keeping track of. A card which is both counterspell and threat and can do both over the course of a game. So a counterspell with some card advantage being built into it, even when it's not the finest of counterspells, you still have to be pretty excited to see that. I think in the mono blue deck that exists presently, this would be a certain inclusion. We don't think that archetype really moves forward, at least not in its present form. But blue-green flash certainly still has options they can consider. Maybe hypnotic sprite can be part of that. I will mention mana is bad. It, we're not getting dual lands here. And so blue-green mana is kind of ugly. You're going to have to play a lot of tap lands. Uh, and UU on the on the body is a little bit scary as well. But I think the versatility of this card will shine through, and I'm pretty high on Hypnotic Sprite. Well, you just lose Hinterland Harbor, right? If you're fine playing Temple and Breeding Pool, then you're okay. Yeah, I think that's tough, though, in these flash setups where you're, your cards are a little underwhelming on their face, and you're using a lot of tricksiness and timing exploits to really get ahead. And having to play behind Curve could be really impactful for that deck. I definitely agree. And, you know, Hypnotic Sprite is UU for the 2-1 body. And a lot of the counter magic is UU. I guess with, like, no Merfolk Trickster and, uh, like, no Opt, maybe you don't need as much early blue mana or early double blue mana. And you can afford to play a few more forests than the old versions did for Nightpack Ambusher. So maybe you can be, like, a little bit more evenly split than before. But... I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. And keep in mind too, like it's not like we want to play this on turn two. If we're doing that, things have gone pretty badly. Ideally, you are able to hold this card, use it for its counterspell effect, and then play your hypnotic sprite, the two one flyer later on in the game after it's already done its dirty work. So I, I wouldn't be ultra concerned about the blue, blue cost, but it does have to factor into the equation. And my mana concerns for that archetype are bigger than just this card. I think there's other issues going on. Oh, yeah. But I'm looking forward to seeing what this card can do. And we know how important just like 
having a body around to pressure planeswalkers is. We know that you can bounce this with planeswalkers, like you can counter your spell, cast Hypnotic Sprite, return it back to your hand with Teferi. That play pattern is just going to be gross, I have a feeling. I think we'll see a lot of that with Adventures. Yeah, um, that's true. That's a lot of access to counter magic, though, for a deck set up around uh, these two cards. Yeah, I think it's worth noting as far as play patterns are concerned that you will basically play this on turn two if you don't have anything else to do on turn two and you feel like the matchup is about traction, tempo, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Or if you have a bunch of other three mana cards, I think you jam this on turn two. Sure, there'll be scenarios and figuring out when to break away from the prescribed usage of this card will always be the type of thing that separates good players from great players. Right. And if you get in six to eight damage with this thing before it gets dealt with or invalidated, I mean, you you can make an argument for always trying to get the card advantage out of the card. But I mean, six to eight damage is almost certainly worth more than a card, depending on what your strategy is. Very true. All right. Next up, we have Robber of the Rich, new mythic that was previewed today, I believe, as of this recording on Wednesday or on Tuesday. I think so. Yeah. One R. 2-2, 2-2, reach haste, human archer, rogue. Whenever this attacks, if defending player has more cards in hand than you, exile the top card of their library. During any turn you attack with a rogue, you may cast that card and you may spend mana as though it were mana of any color to cast that spell. I'm going to be honest, I'm still unpacking this card. And I'm still trying to understand just how good it is. Haste matters a lot. The fact that you don't necessarily have to attack with this to unlock the cards which you have revealed can matter a lot, but this is a very, very small body. There are spots where this will just become blank very quickly. It's not the strongest card in the absolute late game, although it can be very strong in the mid game. I'm having a hard time placing exactly where I see this card in the power scale. And I'll also point out there is... A requirement too, you do have to have fewer cards in your hand. So that points to aggressive strategies. And in aggressive strategies, you're more likely to want your cards than your opponent's cards because they aren't necessarily going to play into your plan as well as your cards. So there's a little bit of attention there. This is one I'm going to have to play with before I give an authoritative rating for it. I have a sense that it's probably going to be more of a sideboard card than just a complete build around jam four of an every red deck. But... I'm willing to be wrong on this one. So I think this card is great. I definitely have to do a gatherer search for rogues to see what Mm -hmm. else is out there. From looking at the the preview so far, Rankle is a notable rogue. Okay, that's a good one. Another haste threat, which also, you know, kind of plays well with each other. Most of the time, like if you're an aggressive red deck, you should have fewer cards than your opponent, right? You know, you're, you're playing... One mana spells, uh, just presumably your curve is much lower. You're able to unload your hand a little bit quicker. And you were talking about like, oh, this might go kind of dead late. But at the very least, you can cash it in for the top card of their deck, right? Yes. Can you do that even if it doesn't survive combat? Like if this dies in combat, can you go to your main phase and play the top card? During any turn, you attacked with a rogue, yes. But what about the fact that this card is no longer on the battlefield? That doesn't invalidate the text? No, it's like Thief of Sanity. Okay, because sometimes that templating fails us and you don't still get to get the effect once the card has left. So I wasn't quite yeah. sure if Robber of the Rich is one where you get to still 
cast the card. That's a good point then. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. It is like weird and confusing, but the I don't know. Like I, I think that this card is a slam dunk in aggressive red decks, especially if you have like w- just one other rogue in your deck. Right. Uh, but even just by itself as this kind of engine, I think that's completely fine. And then this in something like uh, Rakdos or even Gruul, where you have a decent amount of removal and can keep clearing the way and uh, assuming you are doing a reasonable job of like emptying your hand, you know, like Gruul is tends to be like a little bit on the leaner side compared to other mid range decks. Like Gruul is generally the aggro deck in those matchups and has like a, a lower mana curve, a little bit more aggression. So I don't think it's that wild to think that uh, you'd be able to trigger this a few times. And in mid range mirrors, you're, you're pretty happy with whatever card you get. Like if you get to sit on a removal spell for a while or a planeswalker or whatever, like that's great. But I do agree that if you're mono red aggro playing against like Esper Control and you keep flipping Kaya's Wraths or whatever, like you just don't really care. So right. the card is kind of weird for sure. Yeah, it'll have its spots. I, I, I do think they are going to prove to be matchup dependent, but let's see how it plays out. If you could play lands with it, I would totally revise that stance. But the fact that you're oh, only yeah. getting spells changes yeah. things a lot, I think. Yeah, because there are just times when you might end up bricking or if you are missing land drops, you just won't be able to cast the cards anyway. Right. So. There is a lot of downside, but this is kind of the inherent randomness in card games that I don't mind them leaning into. Yeah, it feels a little bit more digital, right? Uh, Something we're inclined to see in those type of games. But yeah, fun effect, interesting effect. Love the call out to Robin Hood. Good stuff. Next up, we have Lockmere Serpent. 4UB77 Creature Serpent. Flash, and you can pay you and Second Island to make it so Lockmere Serpent can't be blocked this turn. Can pay B, Sack a Swamp. You lose or you gain one life and draw a card. And you be exile five target cards from an opponent's graveyard. Return this from your graveyard to your hand. Activate this ability only anytime you could cast a sorcery. So you, you know the meme here, right? You've been exposed to it. Is, is this just the Loch Ness Monster? Yes, and but also, I haven't actually counted this to confirm, but I saw someone post on Twitter that not only is this the Loch Ness Monster, but it has three abilities and there's 50 words in the card text. So it's the Loch Ness Monster asking for 350 as per old South Park episodes. I don't know if that means anything to you, Jerry. I don't know if you're a South Park fan. Uh, none of that means anything to me. I did see that Star City had this card on sale for three fifty, so I'm guessing that there is a joke there. There is a joke, and I can't, I can't believe that's where they went with this card. I can't believe they consciously did that. I kind of hate it and love it at the same time, and I guess like that's the nature of a joke like this: is you're supposed to groan and maybe smile a little bit on top of it. As far as the actual card, this is like the big dumb control finisher again. And I think it's a pretty fine one, but I was just pretty jaw dropped. They went for it. You hate all these cards. It doesn't even matter what you think about this. Every single card like this, you absolutely despise every time. And I have to make the argument like, yes, it's not a staple. It's not going to be all about this. But at some point, the control deck will want to pick up this as its finisher. It'll line up well against everything going on in the format. And Lockmere Serpent will see the tiniest bit of probably sideboard play. You have to keep track of it for that purpose, even if you don't love it as a card. 
No, I think this card sucks. <laughs> okay, pass on it. It's gone. No, just like the the third ability is so mopey and the first two abilities just make this worse as the game goes on because you're like sacking your lands. And I I just don't see this really doing anything. It's, it's expensive. It's not even like that big. Like obviously your best scenario is ambushing a thing in combat, but like this mostly gets chump blocked unless you're willing to just like sack a land every single turn. And even then you're like sack an island attack and they're like, kill it. And it's just like, all right, you know, my, my morphling or whatever basically just did nothing just for six mana in black or blue cast bolus, the Citadel or command the dread horde or any planeswalker ever. And you will be much happier than this giant piece of crap. Promise you. But but you need a card to win the game. Like we haven't been under that constraint in a very long time. We never needed a card to win the game because you have Teferi and Teferi just wins the game on its own. You didn't have to play one card in your deck that could actually go ahead and end the game. Now, Command the Dreadhorde is a very good point. Like that's a fine way to do it. You just take your opponent's things and kill them. And yes, that's probably going to be better than this card in so, so many spots. But you may actually find yourself forced to win a game now that Teferi, Hero of Dominaria, is going to leave the format. I know it's an uncomfortable position for control mages. I have empathy for you. But we may have to look to cards like this to get the job done. Yeah, that's a legit point, for sure. But at the same time, I still think we can do better. I hope so. I hope you're right. Play either blue or, I mean, like maybe black cavalier doesn't work all that well because you don't have any smaller things. But like blue cavalier is better than this card. Uh, I buy that. Yeah. You just, if your thing dies, you may have problems. Like you have to be able to rebuy it. We'll see if you can get away with a card that just dies. It really depends what counter magic looks like, quite frankly. Yeah. And I mean, maybe those decks aren't even like super viable or whatever. Like I, sure. I guess we're going to be seeing a lot of two color decks and then knights as the three color deck. And we're not going to be seeing, you know, a ton of like Esper or Grixis or, or things like that. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe just in in straight blue black, you might have issues actually closing games. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's possible. Even still, though, it just seems like this card lines up pretty poorly against a lot of other things. So, yeah, let's hope we do better than this card. I hope so. I'm gonna yell at Andrew Brown if this card flops because I know he <laughs> made this card. Of course, he did. He loves this style. All right. Next up is uh, would would you guess that this is my favorite card in the set so far? I, that makes sense. This is okay. a, a very silly card. Emery, Lurker of the Lock. To you, legendary creature, Merfolk Wizard, 1-2. This spell costs one less to cast for each artifact you control. When this enters the battlefield, put the top four cards of your library in your graveyard. Tap, choose target artifact card in your graveyard. You may cast that card this turn. I, I'm just heartbroken. I'll never get to play this card in Kethis. That makes me very sad. As you know, I've been playing nonstop Kethis. I see every card under a lens of the Kethis deck presently. I, I can't break away from it. I've played entirely too much of it. So that's a little heartbreaking. But this card can't do anything good. Like this only has problematic applications and it's going to find them. This is a extremely, extremely powerful effect for a card like this. I'm kind of jaw dropped. It's like... You expect a lot of care around cards which ostensibly have affinity, like this one. 
And there doesn't seem like there's a lot of care here. And there's tons of infinite loops I've already seen. And you can do a lot with like Mishra's Bauble as just a value engine in modern. Like this is a modern card 100%. Oh, yeah. Without question. And it probably finds a home in standard too. If you had to ask me to pick one of the top cards, and like this is in my top three without a doubt right now. This is a wild, wild card. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what this is going to do in standard, but as far as modern, you're, you're talking about like, oh no, Kethis deck is rotating. Well, people were working on Kethis in modern and they had a lot of artifacts in their deck and this card seems right at home there because you were already playing like Unearth and some self-mill stuff anyway. This is a legend. So I don't know. It just, it seems like this is all coming together, you know? This gets deep very quickly. Four cards is a lot. And getting to cast artifacts from your graveyard and it's, it's not a one-time effect. It's every single turn you get to unlock this, assuming you're playing fair and not just untapping this repeatedly with tons of different options to do so, and maybe just winning the game on the spot. I could see this spawning a new combo archetype. I could see this just being a fair card for artifact decks. It could be that Urza decks want to look at this card and play some copies of it. Uh, just as a little bit of card selection and a little bit of resiliency. This getting back welding jars just cements your combos really hard. It makes it very difficult to interact with you. I, I, I don't know. This card seems bonkers to me, and I'm I'm kind of astounded it's printed in this fashion. Cost reduction, self-mill, and playing cards from your graveyard, those things are all fine, right? <laughs> all three are broken. Everyone is broken, and we, we know that. And uh, yeah, this is a shocking one for sure. It's also dope with Mox Amber. Yeah. Just every way around. Yeah, I don't know. This card's just wild to me. I'm right there with you. All right, next up we have Murderous Rider. Uh, Creature and Adventure. The Adventure is 1BB instant. Destroy target creature or planeswalker. You lose two life. And the creature side is 1BB, 2-3, Zombie Knight, lifelink. When this dies, put it on the bottom of its owner's library, which I assume is meant to prevent recursion. I don't think that that is supposed to be an upside. Yes, I agree. That is that is a downside. But even with that downside, I think this card is extremely good. Again, I will mention the Teferi thing, like rebuying your instant speed removal spell a bunch of times seems very difficult to deal with. You had the very fair point that three color mana is going to be problematic Point taken. I, I agree. It'll be tough to get those cards working in synergies together. But even as just like a card that you're playing for what it does on its face, I like what's happening here. The fact that it rebuys the life loss you previously had is it, it's just good. Like I would be playing this card if it didn't have the creature stapled onto the backside of it. Right. I'm probably exactly. pretty happy with it. Yep. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know how many uh, Swift End, the 1BB destroy a target creature or planeswalker you lose two life card you could play in a normal deck you would have to have some life gain alongside of it some like basilica bell haunt type of stuff but yeah the fact that you just get a life linking body out of it and it's a knight so you get to do things with that it's just like mm. this this card is real good yeah really pushed this is one that Unlike the other cards I've been super excited about in this set, it, it feels squarely focused on the type of games we play in standard. This is a great standard magic card and one that like I'm not worried about. I don't think it's pushing things really far. It's just like a good solid effect that's going to be an important piece of value in the format going forward. Exactly. Uh, one, one thing that these cards do to the format is there are just more random creature bodies lying around. 
because mm-hmm. of stuff like this. So it's like, in this case, the adventure is good enough to play on its own, I think. And in the case of things like Hypnotic Sprite, it's like, okay, like maybe you do this and you tag team Hypnotic Sprite with some other creature to kind of kill them quickly once you've sort of stabilized or whatever. But either way, I just think that even decks that would normally be creature light or close to creature less, you're, you're going to end up, you know, fighting against these two to three lifelinks, right? So then your, your things like your spot removal or uh, your, your one, eight, seven creatures, like, if there's like a hostage taker type of thing, like they're mm. very rarely actually just going to be dead. Very true. Uh, I think that these cards are among my favorite in the set because of impacts like that. I think the way they're going to change games of standard is for the better. I oh, think yeah. they'll have, they'll do a good job getting focus back onto the battlefield and mitigating what I see is the damage that planeswalkers have done to the format recently. I, I do think you can make a case that like the omnipresence of Teferi, Narset, big Teferi, all those cards did have a little bit of a chilling effect on people's enjoyment of standard. I think this is a really nice, elegant way to bring things back a little bit more in alignment. Uh, it still kind of blows against Teferi, right? You're like, Oh, I'm going to hold open my three mana instant speed answer. And then my way nothing. to deal with the planeswalker. <laughs> So this card on its face is not great as to how it lines up with Teferi, but just the presence of more bodies around in general is a good thing. Of yes. course, there's the other side of the coin that I've talked about a few times where what if Teferi is just rebuying these creatures all the time? Maybe that's where we're headed. Uh, we'll, yeah. we'll have to see. Yeah, it's awkward. All right. Moving on, we have Questing Beast, and this has six abilities and 60 words. So is there a joke there that I'm missing? Uh, not a good one. I will tell you that this is another mythic rare with keyword words. That seems to be the, the style here. It's, it's born of the modern horizon cycle of mythic rares. Oh, nice. Uh, well, give me five minutes. I'm going to read this card, right? I don't know if you want to take a bathroom break or something. Yeah. I'll check out for a bit. Yeah. Two GG four, four legendary creature beast vigilance, death touch haste. This can't be blocked by creatures with power two or less. Combat damage that would be dealt by creatures you control can't be prevented. Hilarious. Whenever this deals combat damage to an opponent, it deals that much damage to target Planeswalker that player controls. Brian's gone. He's just gone. All right. Sorry. What did I miss? Did did you get through the card yet? Uh, Barely. Yeah. You just made it back in time. Okay. Nice. I, I don't know what we're doing here. This is a whole lot of words. I don't like this card it doesn't resonate with me i don't like this style of design where just keep tacking on abilities until it starts to feel good and like yeah i I think this card is probably pretty good and i I also think it's good to have four mana creatures that are playable a lot of times we just pass on that but the fact that you have to load them up with keywords to make them so is not my favorite thing on the planet but let's ignore that and talk about what this card can do Obviously, haste is a very big deal against planeswalkers. The fact that it's pushing your clock and simultaneously answering a planeswalker, I think, is a really, really big deal. And again, another way of maybe mitigating this planeswalker focus that we've had recently. So probably an important card, but it's a little bit identityless. Like it's just this dumb creature. And what strategies want to utilize this card? That's the question I really have. And the boring answer is just like a mono green aggro deck, but that's kind of lame. 
But you have to ask the question, does this really slot into anything else? Do you want to play this card in a mid-range deck? Maybe. Maybe it's just fine and all you want of these stats. But usually you want a little bit more card advantage and a little bit more, I guess I would say, versatility in your mid-range decks. But sometimes the stats are just good enough, and maybe that's the case here with Questing Beast. Yeah, I mean, Shifting Ceratops was supposed to be the answer to the Teferis, right? Mm -hmm. And this is a card that is stronger than that card on rate. And the fact that if they, you know, they go uh, like small creature into Teferi and tick up, you don't get to kill it right away, but you definitely get to play it, chunk it, make it so they can't actually repulse you and they can't jump block with their small thing. And then you also have this thing on defense. Uh, right. if, there, if there's some turbo fog stuff going on, which I highly doubt, then uh, this KOs that too. And yeah, you get to attack them and uh, hit the Teferi too, which is nice. So, I mean, I, I do think that this has enough word soup that it does things that are relevant. What do you make of that clause that combat damage can't be prevented? Is is that a plant? Do you see any issues? Do you think that might have been pointed at addressing or I mean, that's that's the oddest part of this card. And if you're going to complain about the word salad thing, then the answer is like, okay, let's get some of the words off this card. But obviously there's a very important reason why somebody feels those words have to be there. And I'm kind of at a loss. I don't know what it is. I think it was your fault. It's my fault. Are you blaming this on on the Nexus decks? Is that what's going on here? Yeah, obviously. But they're gone. They're rotating. It's like, I don't know. You're not, well, I hope you're not going to make another Nexus of Fate. So cards like that are essential for turbo fog strategies to have. And unless you're going to make a bunch of howling minds, then I'm not super concerned about it coming back hard, but maybe it was just such a miserable experience that they wanted to have a little bit of a safety valve and questing beast is supposed to be exactly that. So here's the thing. What if you print a bunch of like mediocre to crappy artifacts and you're like, well, no one's going to play with these. So we don't need to ever make a shatter. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not great, right? You would still prefer to have a shatter, especially in case you miss something or mess something up. So this sort of thing has not really existed. It's like the, the green aggro decks have always just like splashed counter spells or splashed duress. And that sucks, man. So this is a unique ability that they finally put on a creature, which I think is cool. It might be relevant. It might not. It might just be like, all right, that's the stupid third head of this questing beast. He, He doesn't really do anything, you know? And, and that's fine. I think that's okay. Yeah, I guess the thing about a shatter is that it eats up one of your common slots. And this is adding another clause to a very, very wordy card. And honestly, I'll, I'll be frank. Just now I put together like there's three different creatures here and each one represents a different head. So, okay, I get that now. And I, I was not putting that together. I still think it's a little silly, but it hasn't resonated with me clearly until this moment, which means that one, I might be an idiot, or two, it's just not the strongest piece of flavor. I don't know. Well, if you decide that you want to do a Chimera-like thing and it has three heads and you're like, oh, well, each of these heads should have an ability, this thing is going to need three abilities no matter what. You could remove all the keywords, I guess, or you could just remove the the funky uh, flavor text on this thing with the anti-fog stuff, but like, whatever. Yeah. I think most of the time it's not going to do a lot and... There's going to be a decent amount of time, a small amount of time where it's like actually relevant. But if there is some sort of like prevent damage card that does see a lot of play, the thing I worry about with this is that this thing is not going to have that part be relevant 
often enough. You're you're just going to have it be like the static abilities on Narset and Teferi, right? Where just like people continually forget about it and that sucks. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a little gun shy with static abilities right now. So I understand what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't think of anything like that off the top of my head. I don't see anything like that. I do really think that it's just a uh, root snare clause and whatever. Yeah, we will we will see. Maybe this is a plant for the future. Maybe it's just a little bit of a safety valve. I, th- I think it's safety valve. And it's just like, well, we could give this thing a sixth ability, but it should be kind of weak. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. On to... The Royal Scions. One UR, Legendary Planeswalker, Will Rowan, starting loyalty five, plus one, draw a card, then discard a card, plus one, target creature gets plus two, plus zero, and gains first strike and trample until end of turn, and minus eight, draw four cards. When you do, this deals damage to any target equal to the number of cards in your hand. Weird, weird Planeswalker. Maybe if we didn't just come from a world that had Narset and Teferi at three mana, I would be more excited about this because it used to be any three mana Planeswalker that was able to do anything was enough to get me excited and probably mattered. And honestly, that probably holds true with the Royal Signs. There's likely a home for this. But in the face of cards like Narset and Teferi, which were just absolutely format warping, this does look a little bit weaker. It's got a huge, huge loyalty count. For a three mana planeswalker, six loyalty right off the bat, basically no matter what, is big. And that means you basically can't ignore this card. Like you have to interact with it in some way. And investing six points of damage into answering it permanently is often going to be a high cost. So I think the more apt play pattern will be people just mitigating the ultimate. And that means you have a card selection engine online for quite a long period of time, if that is the case. So That gets points for the Royal Scions, but I don't know what we're supposed to be doing with this card selection engine right now. And you have to be able to leverage the other side of this. And it's hard to do both in concert with each other. So I need to know a little bit more about what a red blue deck is trying to accomplish in the new format before I can get excited about this card, because on its face, it's much weaker than existing three mana planeswalker options. I agree with that. I think that these abilities are kind of weird too, where it's like, I kind of want the looting and the alt for my control deck or my mid-range deck. Right. But the other the other plus one for plus two plus zero, it's like, yeah, this, this gets in like a decent amount of damage, right? It, it, trample and first strike basically makes your creature unblockable, right? So right. you are going to be getting in a lot of damage with this, but then it's like you're a blue-red creature deck. I don't really know what that looks like. We had... Uh, I've got Wizards. a card for you. I've got a card for you. Dreadhorde Arcanist. Uh, yeah, okay. I mean... It's nice, yeah, that, right? Yeah, that plays well with both of these abilities for sure. I was thinking like... Electromancer, Crackling Drake, Arclight Phoenix, but... Yeah, I, it makes sense there as well. I could buy that. I mean, we're probably losing, like, all of the one-mana spells, so you're yeah. really going to be leaning on Electromancer, so I don't know. Yeah, but, we'll have to see if that can come together. It, I mean, nobody is really expecting much from the Is It Guild, I think, as we move into this set. I haven't seen much out of these previews that gets me excited about it. But there's pieces floating around and you can put those cards together in a certain fashion and make something interesting happen. And maybe the Royal Signs would be part of that. Yeah, I mean, so this this was the card that I talked about pre prematurely last week. And I just thought like, oh, you know, this this card's pretty medium. It, it seems just like pretty bad because I don't know where it's going to fit. But that's basically always going to be the case with like these new strange cards. 
Mm-hmm. And after thinking about it for a little bit, I can build some decks in my head that would use this. Dreadhorde Arcanist is definitely a thing that I did not consider and might be quite good. But yeah, I'm still not like, oh yeah, this is a slam dunk. I definitely want to build around this. It's like, okay, maybe this ends up being good, but I doubt it. Right. Right there with you. All right, let's let's talk about a fun one. The the actual fairy tale card. Once upon a time, 1G instant. If this spell is the first spell you've cast this game, you may cast it without paying its mana cost. Those are always fine words. Oh, yeah, nothing bad happens with that. Look at the top five cards of your library. You may reveal a creature or land card from among them, put it in your hand, put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. Go off on me. I mean, it's, it's time for some swearing. Holy shit. I cannot believe this card. So... When you're looking at something new like this, there's always like this trepidation and you're like, well, they wouldn't have gone this far unless they were 100% sure it was safe and I'm going to look like a fool if I go in hard on this. But I I can't help myself. The mode where you get to play this for free, this is one of the best magic cards ever printed. Like bar none. It is absolutely insane. And we have a new mulligan rule that lets you set up your hand a little bit more differently. And this is just going to instill so much consistency in so many decks. Now, the other mode where you're actually paying full retail for this card is fine. In most cases, it's absolutely fine. You're you're willing to pay that cost to get that kind of selection and you'll live with it. And there's if you go through the decks that exist now in standard, it's so clear that the green decks almost universally pick this card up. The one deck that may not would be something like Simic Nexus, but we don't even see that deck anymore. Something like Scapeshift is all about this card. Being able to start on this and consistently find uh, the land you're looking for on turn one is a really big deal. And then you get to the late game and you just have way too much mana and you're just looking for something like Golos anyway. So you just have more virtual copies of Golos in your deck and you fix your early draws. Uh, something like Elementals relies on Risen Reef early. It relies on Omnath late. This does both those things. Any green deck which has Llanowar Elves in it, once Llanowar Elves in its opening hand, this is more virtual Llanowar Elves. And then as you get into the late game, usually you have threats which are far more impactful. Something like Hydroid Crisis, Cavalier of Thorns. Those cards do not they outscale everything else in your deck as you get to the late game. And it's exactly what you want in those scenarios. And once upon a time is going to provide that. And it does it at instant speed too. Like, did this have to be an instant? Couldn't this just be a sorcery and at least make things a little bit more interesting, put a little tension in the decision. Cause this card just seems like an absolute slam dunk to me in not only all those standard decks I mentioned, but you got to talk modern too. You have to talk Tron. You have to talk, Neo brand, you have to talk devoted druid, you have to talk amulet. I think all those decks got an upgrade from this card. It's a different size upgrade in each of those decks. And I have some concerns when it comes to including this in Tron. And I have some concerns when it comes to including this in Neo brand. I think it'll make the cut. I don't think it's as good as other people think it is. But on the whole, this card is just bonkers. Any am I wrong? Like, this is a scary one, right? No, this this card is absolutely stupid. I yeah. hate it so much. Just despise it already. I'm curious as to what the numbers are where uh, Land of is rotating, but we have the Gilded Goose. So it's like, oh, cool. Like, you know, we only have one mana creature, so you don't have to play against decks with eight mana creatures, and they just always have it on turn one. And it's like, well, isn't there then a big disparity in 
how good your green deck is when you start on turn one mana dork versus not like, shouldn't that just be a feature of the format versus like, Oop, I spiked my land elf and it lives. So, you know, prepare to just get buried when I, I have like a mox effectively. And what is the math on this? Like how much does it actually help the consistency? Like you have goose, but no green source, or you have green source, but no, no goose, or you have land goose, but you don't have your second land to cast Oko to feed the goose. You know, like how much overall does this help? I think it helps a ton. It's just, it's gross. And that's not even talking about modern where there's so many creature combo decks and uh, would they like a free impulse? Yes, I think they would. And even like you said, the backside is not that bad. It's not awful. It's not serum visions or ancient stirrings or whatever. You're not going to be able to weave it in as easily. And, you know, we talked about this the other night in Tron specifically and it doesn't find like all of Tron's threats, right? Because you're looking for O-Stone or Planeswalkers, and this only gets like Wormcoil, Ulamog, Lands, Ballista, uh, which is still a decent amount of stuff. Uh, so it's not as good late as Stirrings or whatever, but when the deck is willing to mulligan to three to find Tron, I mean, you're just going to end up finding one of these in there too. You get to put back all of the extra copies because of London Mulligan, and it just seems so stupid. So I, I want to know how much it increases consistency of turn one mana dork or increases consistency of turn three Tron. Enough is the answer that I think ostensibly every green deck is built around this card going forward, definitely in standard. And it's probably a huge feature of most green decks in modern as well. I, I just don't know how you pass on such a powerful effect. I struggled to come up with decks that didn't want this effect. The only time it really came up were really, really aggressive green decks and decks that were aggressive by going wide. So essentially you never wanted to take a spot off in your curve. Right. But even there, it's like you, you've played against mono green aggro and you know the difference between that deck having a Lana or Elf and not having a Lana or Elf. And maybe you just eat it there to have your Lana or Elf more reliably so you can have turn two Steel Leaf Champion, which is almost unbeatable in a lot of spots. And I, I don't know. It just seems like why would you make a card which seems like just by its default power level has to be ubiquitous. Like it has to be played by every conceivable green deck. And like five cards deep, you're going to hit the vast majority of the time. Like something like Tron only has 28 hits for default builds. That's fine. You're going to hit a large enough percentage of the time that you can still play this card. Now, granted, like I said, I'm not high on it in Tron because for your turn one find, you're always going to have sub 12 hits. So there's not a huge amount you're looking for. Like, that's not to say I don't think Tron plays this. It does. It's just not, oh, Tron is now just absolutely broken. It's an upgrade, but it's probably a pretty slight upgrade. And I said the same about Neobrand. I think it's a very, very slight upgrade for Neobrand. And I think that deck is so far off being playable in the current metagame that it won't matter all that much. And those were the two panic points I saw from everyone very early on. Like, oh, these decks are just broken right now. And I do think they got upgraded. I don't think they're problematically upgraded. It's the other stuff. I think Amulet got a tremendous upgrade. I think Devoted Druid got an absolutely tremendous upgrade. And I already thought that deck was close. So that's the deck I could see really breaking through on the back of this card. I think you're really underestimating what this card does for Tron because you're like, oh, they don't have a lot of hits. But if their top five cards were not the Tron land that they needed to hit anyway... Then they're closer. Yeah, they're closer or they're just going to lose straight up, you know? So, yeah, I mean, obviously there are things like, oh, well, they're going to shuffle the next turn or whatever. 
uh, with Expedition Map or something. You know, like the, there are arguments, right? But if you use a card to look at the top five cards and you don't find the thing that you need, I mean, whatever. This this was zero mana, and instead of it being like you mold to five, it's like you mold to four, and you're still short a Tron piece, you know? It's really not that big of a difference for Tron to just discard a card at, you know, at a random point in the game. The question I have to ask, though, is like, okay, well, this this also gets into our later discussion, and we'll be talking about this, but if you see Tron as either good or not good in the format presently, how much of that is related to its consistency? Because quite frankly, Tron is already probably the most consistent deck in the format. It does the thing it's trying to do a vast, vast majority of the time. And going from like, I, don't, I have no idea what the percentages are, but going to 80% of the time having turned three Tron to 83% of the time having turned three Tron, is that actually fundamentally changing how good the deck is? How many percentage points are you getting across various matchups by adding that to the deck? Again, I'm not saying it's not good and you shouldn't play it. That's that's not what I'm trying to instill here. I'm just saying I don't know how much better the deck actually gets because it doesn't convert the resource as effectively in, in the late game. And that's where I think Amulet and Devoted Druid get a lot where they're often in positions where they have excess mana and they find one specific card and they just win the game on the spot. And they're going to be finding that card a lot more reliably and improving their early game setup. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what, one thing that Tron gets to do, and I'm sure a lot of other decks get to do too, is you get to shave at least one land if you're willing to play three or four copies of this card. So as far as like, oh, maybe this is dead in the late game, well, they also have one less basic forest or whatever garbage land they have in their deck. So you're realistically sacrificing like two, maybe three, three deck slots and one of them is like you probably cut a sylvan scrying in a forest i think those are the two easy ones and then i don't know the deck all, already has like ugins that are bad in some matchups osones that are bad in some matchups ballistas that are bad in some matchups etc so obviously there's going to be like a huge balance but again i i'm seeing like this is an upgrade to consistency and very little downside for consistency post tron but what you were saying is definitely relevant, right? Where if Tron was good in this current metagame, it would be because when it gets Tron, it is overpowering it the other decks. Correct. And right now, I'm sure there are a lot of games where Tron, Tron's on turn three, even on the play, and loses anyway. Yes. And if that's the case, yeah, whatever. I mean, let them Tron turn three a little bit more consistently. They're still going to lose. Maybe they still get Alpine Moon, or Urza Combo kills them, or Burn kills them, or whatever. And obviously there are things that the other decks can do to react to that once maybe, you know, Tron gets more stronger or more popular, maybe both. So it is sort of self-correcting. So maybe it's not that big of a deal. But then again, there are also the decks that you named where it's just like, God, these decks really need the help. You know, why is this a thing? And then there's just like a lot of frustrating aspects of playing this card in standard too. Yeah, all the Tron stuff is us splitting hairs. We we both agree this is a an absolutely wild, wild card. If I had to do a set review today, it would be my number one card going away, not even close. Like I said, the first mode, playing it for free, it's one of the most broken magic cards ever printed. And we say the word broken a lot, and oftentimes we don't mean it, but zero mana cantrip is absolutely broken and... I am astounded this card got printed. Yeah, I, I'm the, the thing I want to do with this card is 
put it in like some black blue mid range deck where you have a bunch of creatures and you know you want to hit your land drops and everything and then find some way to get like a free splash for this thing so you can cast it in the late game. Mm-hmm. That sounds because, nice to me. But yeah, because there's no downside to that. It's not you know look for a forest or look for a green card or anything like that. It's like you you can actually just play this off color if you want to. And for standard specifically, I would definitely want to be able to cast this because the games are going to go long, but it, w- it would be a light splash, you know? Yeah. If we get to the point where this is just in that style of deck you're describing, then we know things have gone a little bit wrong. Yeah. And we'll see. I mean, it depends on what creatures exist, but Things like Murderous Rider with the adventure. Right. This, this fine I mean, spells. This fine spells somehow. It's just crazy. So yeah, we, we can move on. Uh, this card is absurd in a lot of different ways, and I want to know what the dev notes were like on this card. Same. Mysteries, man. All right, we got we got two cards left. Uh, Mystical Dispute to you instant. This spell costs two less to cast if it targets a blue spell. Counter target spell unless its controller pays three. Uh, in something like Simic Flash, three mana soft counter is obviously not great. It depends what the other options are. But if blue is a, a big portion of the metagame, this is like a gain say that you can main deck. And I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, Teferi's not going anywhere. And a lot of these decks like Simic Flash will have to account for Teferi or they cannot exist. This is a nice way of doing so. There is the problem of counter magic going dead if a Teferi is ever resolved, and then you just have this absolute blank piece of cardboard in your hand. And we see that in the present format as we see fewer and fewer Dovin's Vetoes and no absorbs. Counter magic is almost entirely gone from the format at this point. And I think correctly so. Yep. And I don't know that that changes 100% just because Mystical Dispute is around, but maybe it's a step to decks which would otherwise just fold to Teferi having some way of continuing to participate in the game. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm scrolling through uh, all the previews and random thought just occurred to me when we were talking about six mana win conditions and how there might not be a good one, but you can always just play Ugin. And I think Ugin is better than Lockmere Serpent by a lot. Yeah, I I agree with that. I, I can't fight that spot. Even Liliana, you know, Liliana's not seen it's on a play, but she's better than that card. Yeah, it does more for sure. All right, moving on. Last card, Outlaw's Merriment. One R dub dub, four mana enchantment. At the beginning of your upkeep, choose one at random, create a red and white creature token with those characteristics. And the characteristics are 3-1 Human Warrior with Trample and Haste. 2-1 Human Cleric with Lifelink in Haste, 1-2 Human Rogue with Haste, and when this creature enters the battlefield, it deals one to any target. So there's there's another Rogue thing. This is a lot of white mana for it, though. Yeah, so you, you had to request this get added to the list of cards to talk about, because I'm pretty low on this card. I, I think it's too slow, and when I just think about how big things are presently getting in constructed things like Golo setups and Kethis. And again, rotation, I know all this is changing, but I can only look at the context as it exists now. And I don't know the broader post rotation context. So I know some of those cards still exist. And this feels like a little bit of small ball to me for a pretty large mana investment for, especially a card that comes down and just does nothing 
actual nothing on the turn you play it. And I think I would want more from an effect like this. The card that I hear people talking about is uh, Assemble the Legion, but Assemble the Legion scaled so hard as the game went on. This doesn't do so as aggressively, even if the creatures it's making are a little bit more impactful. I don't know. I, I just didn't get excited about this card. And maybe you can tell me why I'm wrong. This card has some problems. The biggest problem, I think, is Teferi Time Raveler. Yeah, that's another one. Which is just heinous. It is just so bad to play this into a Teferi. Uh, I, I think this is a sideboard card, and I think it's a fairly powerful one, but it's also just for a very specific matchup or metagame. This in like mono red mirrors, I think is kind of a breaker, but even then uh, there are things like experimental frenzy, right? So maybe, maybe there are stronger options already, but I don't know. This is a a grindy card that does some cool stuff. And I think could be relevant at some point. Like obviously if, if this just gets to sit around, then I I think you're in a very good spot. I think you're going to win. Yeah, it just feels a little small ball to me. And the Teferi problem is a, a very, very large one. Um, oh, there's there's Teferi, Trophy, Mortify. Like, all these cards are still around. They're still going to see play. Right, right. You, you got to show me something with this card first. For the time being, I'm passing on it. Yeah, no, completely legit. It, it does say Rogue on it, though. It does. I can't argue with that. So, yeah, it do- doesn't do anything the, the turn at ETBs, but all the tokens have haste, which is uh, pretty nice and I think makes up for that a little bit. And one third of the time you randomly get to target, you get to trigger your Robin Hood. Congratulations. Hell yeah. Exactly. See, you get it. <laughs> All right. A uh, lot of lot of semi-busted stuff, busted looking stuff. Yeah, I think so. Uh, this doesn't feel like a magic set to me. I mean, it, it does, but like it's very clearly different. And mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I like it, but I, I, I haven't. I, I haven't really it. decided yet. Yeah, I absolutely love it. I don't I don't know if I talked about this here. One of the weird things about making content in a lot of different mediums is that I don't know where I say things a lot of the time, and I'm concerned that I'm repeating myself. But somewhere I talked about how I was watching the most recent Hearthstone trailer, and I was just like so jealous because everything seemed cool and fun and referential of society at large and lighthearted. And I I just loved it. Like I came away from the trailer just being like, man, I wish my game felt more like this. And this very much has that going on. It it feels smarter. It feels a little tongue in cheekier. You know, we talked about the Loch Ness monster previously, stuff like that is silly, but I appreciate it. Magic doesn't have to be grim, dark light all the time. This has a totally different feel and I am digging it and I'm really happy things went in this direction and I I wouldn't mind more of it whatsoever. Magic does take itself very seriously. Yes, yes, very seriously. And one of the things when I found Magic, it didn't, it just didn't like that's not, that wasn't the setup early on. There was both serious and kind of self-mocking at the same time. And I appreciated those little asides and I, I looked forward to them. And then somewhere I, I would say about the time the story was installed, yeah. we lost a lot of that. It all, yep. it all started to drift away and this feels like a return in a big way. And I am very much appreciating it. Right and, now. and Phil Foglio stopped doing art for the cards. Right. That's you when, know? that's when things went down. <laughs> I mean, pretty much, right. It's like, that's no, when I, every, 
That's what I love that art style. Yeah, I, I love that art style. It, he was always my favorite artist back in the day. It's kind of weird and cheesy and didn't fit with anything else that's going on, but there's room in magic for everything to not look the same and everything can be, you can be experimental. You can be striking, you can do something different. And I, I am really happy they chose to do so here. Yeah. And I mean, especially with the art style, I think that there's a broader range in this set, which is cool. Yeah, it does feel that way. Uh, there's like the blue black hybrid card, which I don't know. We know an official name for, but that's got a really striking piece in art piece of art that looks very different from what i've seen before uh there's the card we talked about last week where i literally didn't know what i was looking at but still appreciated it and that was one of the premium versions of a card i thought that was really cool so all that stuff is hitting with me right now i I just love the vibe from the set there's there's a lot of people riding animals too which is dope sure i'm all about that (laughs) just just getting along just fine yep all right, uh, that's that's probably going to be it for Eldraine until the full spoiler is out. Do you agree with that assessment? I think so. Will that leave us doing our top 10 show next week or two weeks from now? I hope it's two weeks from now. I hope we get a little bit of time off and we get like that slow bleed of new previews and get time to like build decks and think about the cards a little bit more. But it might actually just be next week. So maybe... Me even saying that we're taking a break until then is uh, a, right. a, a bold-faced lie. Right. We, we tried to pare things down this time, but I think you and I both just get really excited about new cards, and it's yeah. hard to stay away from them, and he, especially here where there's so many interesting ones. It didn't feel like we were stretching for things to talk about. Well, it was it was me adding the 11th card, I think, that really made us hit the hour mark, so right. that's right. my bad. You broke it. Yep. But yeah, I mean, we could talk about Modern for like another hour if you want. I'm here. I'm here. I'm talking. You can't shut me up now. So let's do it. All right. Modern tier list. Do you want to just start at tier one or do you just want to like shock call what you think the best deck is? Nothing has changed in my opinion. I keep saying Urza is the best deck. Prove otherwise. Nobody has proven otherwise thus far. There's other contenders. There's going to be more decks in tier one that we're going to talk about. But Urza does broken things and there's multiple setups for the deck and it may have gotten a new tool pretty soon. So it's still, that is my number one deck as it stands right now, but things are starting to shake up a little bit in the tiers 1.5 tier two, certainly a lot of new stuff happening there. And all of this can change basically in an instant, but for the time being, that is still my shot or is it the best deck? Yeah, I mostly agree with you. I I experimented with a bunch of different versions of Azorius Urza with Stoneforge Mystic taking the place of Goblin Engineer. Obviously, they don't do the exact same thing. Goblin Engineer is a little bit more versatile. I think the vast, vast majority of the time, both are going to die on site. But when Engineer does live in those rare cases, you basically just win the game. It's like so hard to beat an actual uh, an active Engineer. And I was trying to, you know, make the mana base a little cleaner, trying to solve all my problems with just blue and white cards. And after I traded in all the cards on Magic Online, after I was sick of going 3-2 in every single league I played, I figured out a way to make the deck a little bit better, which kind of sucks. So I don't actually get to experiment with it, but I was already kind of off blue-white and just ready to accept that the four or five color versions were just better, more versatile. Uh, even though 
I don't know. It's it's just not as clean. It looks like a mess. There's a lot of two ofs, just a bunch of random nonsense and everything. But yeah, like the the deck keeps winning. It doesn't actually win every tournament, but there's almost always like a couple copies in top eight, and it's sort of got that lantern appeal where not a ton of people are playing it too. Yes, I, that's a key point. Is we keep seeing these top eights, and they seem to be just infested with Urza and I, I don't think it's anywhere near the most played deck. I think it is filtering to the top. Uh, it's funny. You mentioned blue white versus four color. I am coming around to the idea that four color is default better. I think blue white has its place. And my other commentary partner, Craig Kremples just won a PTQ playing the blue white version down in New York city uh, yeah. this past weekend. So and his list was interesting. He posted it on his Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So he had no path to exile. He was playing on thin ice. Mm-hmm. And then also, yeah, his sideboard was strange. The main deck was different than what I was doing. I don't remember the exact specifics, but I remember looking at it and be like, you know, damn, Craig put in some work, you know? Yeah, definitely a lot of ways to take this archetype right now. People still experimenting with it, but its results are clear. It is among the best decks in modern and you should certainly be accounting for it and it's doing all of this while the format's focus is clearly on artifacts with the addition of stoneforge mystic everyone's thinking about artifacts everyone's accounting for artifacts in post-board games and urza is finding a way around that yeah granted i think that stoneforge is sort of throwing a wrench into things where people are maybe more willing to play things like Smash to Smithereens and Kolagon's Command and not mm-hmm. a lot of the actual hard targeting stuff. And uh, I wrote an article on Bant Stone Blade, the, I think the last week maybe, and my sideboard was just four Collector Oof. And it's just like, I'm no, just play four. Don't play two, don't play three. They have a bunch of Assassin's Trophies. You kind of need to stick this card in order to not just lose. And... They are ready to kill a Stony Silence or an Oof. So you you can't afford to mess around. But I think Oof plus uh, Force of Negation. Force of Negation is definitely one of the strongest cards against the archetype because it just kind of blows them out. They do so much setup and then they're like Thopter Foundry. And mm. the blue decks are now uh, adapting a little bit where you see the numbers of Spell Snare creeping up. Main deck Force of Negation is pretty high. And things like Stony Silence are showing back up again in sideboards and stuff. So I I think that deck is doing what it can to actually fight them. But previously, Urza just had everything covered. Yeah, I I still think it does. I don't think the other contenders in the metagame have caught up quite yet. There is probably potential to do so, but you got to make the moves first. And like I said, beat me first and then I'll respect you. Of course. For the time being, Urza gets to hold the chips. People do this thing so often, right? Where we we say tier one, let's let's just name the three decks, right? It's Wurza, Burn, and then Stoneforge, which I assume you mean to be Azorius or Azorius with a splash. Yeah, I I just don't think we know the best version of Stoneforge, but it is a blue-based version. I'm very sure of that. Right. So those are the three decks that I would put in tier one. And after Dallas, uh basically a week ago, or two weeks ago. Uh, it was last weekend, right? I don't know. All it Maybe just it was two weekends ago. No, it was two weeks ago. Because time is all blurred together. If there's so much magic in my life, I just yeah, smush it yeah. all in one big no. ball in my head. Last weekend was indie. You are correct. There was no That's coverage right. last week, so it was basically like two weeks ago. And after that tournament, it was like, okay, these are the tier one decks, right? And people who 
It, this happens more in standard when, when people have the ability to actually switch decks. In modern, right. it's obviously a lot tougher, but people are just like, well, Burn's a tier one deck. Everyone knows about it. I can't play Burn anymore. And that might be true for something specifically like Burn, but if if you watched Harlan's matches when he won Dallas, and if you read his article, it was just like, yeah, people kept playing hate cards against me, and I kept plowing through them. So... There are a lot of people who are just like, oh, you know, Urza won the tournament. It's going to be on everyone's radar. I can't play it. And Harlan's just like, yes, everyone thinks that they have a good plan against me and they don't. So I'm going to keep playing my deck and crushing people. It's the Hogak thing again. Everyone had a good Hogak matchup. Everyone, everyone you spoke to. Oh, I beat Hogak. I beat Hogak over and over. How many times did you hear that phrase? And no one beat Hogak. We just delude ourselves into thinking we have this figured out. But you know, the, the top tier decks can adapt as well. They can make moves to account for your moves. And Urza has a lot of moves up its sleeve still. And I think all these three decks have moves up their sleeve. Burn is a little bit harder to find the adaptations. It was a beautiful, beautiful metagame call in Dallas. Props to that team who, who came up with the Burn deck that ran over that tournament. And I think it held a lot of that into the next week. The question is now, are people making the appropriate adaptations? I know I was playing Core Firewalker in my Stoneforge sideboards at this point. I I just think it's that necessary if you want to beat Burn. Uh, I don't know if other people are going that far, but like you said, there's not as much deck mobility when it comes to a format like Modern. Yeah, I mean, Burn is the exact sort of archetype where you can take basically any deck on this list and add some life gain cards, and now you have a slightly better Burn matchup. Mm -hmm. And... You know, Tron, you can start main decking Thragtus to go with your Worm Coil engine. Jund is a little bit tougher because you need your cards to actually do stuff and the Life King cards aren't great. I mean, you can play Kitchen Finks instead of Seasoned Pyromancer or whatever and have that grindy card that's a little bit stronger against Burn. But in a lot of the spots, it's really going to come out of your sideboard, right? Like if Jund wants to play four Weather the Storm and four Collective Brutality, they certainly can. And then you're just, you're Dobbs. Yeah, there, there's tools to beat you, and you have to either have jukes or have to accept that Burn has a uh, limited shelf life. And I, I still think it's it's viable at this point. It's still in my tier one. People have to show the appropriate respect. They are trending that way. I don't think we're there quite yet, though. Yeah, I, I think a month from now, Burn is not going to be anywhere on this list. That's fair. That's totally fair. But right now, it's quite good. And also a month from now, Urza is still probably going to be on the list. Yeah, there's a good chance. Stoneforge probably going to be on the list. But Burn so. is exactly the deck that is easy to hate out if you actually care. And even aside from the sideboard stuff, uh, people can just start playing decks that have a naturally good matchup against it too, which I think we'll see happening a little bit. Yeah. So maybe we need some clarity around our Stoneforge inclusion on this slot. Why don't you just talk about what you're doing with Stoneforge right now? Because I know you have uh, basically been tirelessly working on the archetype. I've played it quite a bit as well. We both attended FNM, played a little bit of Modern. We both independently brought Jeskai <laughs> Stoneforge to the tournament. Yeah, we were both kind of busy. And it was like, all right, we need to have a, a business meeting to discuss some things. Let's just meet at Mox Boarding House and talk about stuff, play some modern. And we both show up with Jeskai Stoneblade when maybe like three days earlier, two days earlier, we were both just like, this deck sucks. And then our, our decks were fairly similar. There are some notable differences, but 
Yeah, I, I basically started with Azorius. I thought that Azorius had the tools to handle everything and didn't necessarily need to splash. Then uh, Dallas kind of solidified things, and I realized that my life would be a lot easier if I added the red, and the red was quite good for me at that FNM. I played against Valakit twice, and I had Alpine Moons in my sideboard that were fairly key, and I had all the lightning bolts and burn spells, which allowed me to close the door a little bit quicker and everything. But then, after I 4 that FNM, I actually figured out a way for Azorius to not have to splash anymore, which includes playing more removal. The sweepers in the format are basically not very good. Supreme Verdict does not line up well against any of the bigger decks except for a couple of them. Like format humans. is too much. Format yeah. is just too much for this format. It's too much, and you're trying to pl- play to the board with like Stoneforge, Mystic, and Spellqueller, right? So mm-hmm. you really need to want to kill creatures and have to kill creatures if you want to play Stone for- or Supreme Verdict in your Stoneforge deck. But kind of taking a, a, a page out of Kremple's book, I was like, why we have Path and we have Anthonice? Why don't I just play those? So I have six bottom removal spells in my main deck, and the sideboard I have four Leyline of Sanctity and. The burn decks right now are just red and white, and their permanent destruction of choice is Smash the Smithereens because of Wurza and because of Batterskull, and they don't want to splash for Destructive Revelry because, I mean, it hurts in the mirror match too. So Leyline is just kind of golden against them, and obviously you need to be able to kill their creatures, and for this Stoneblade deck specifically... You can kill them with creatures or kill them with planeswalkers, or at least accrue a big advantage with planeswalkers. And now, with the rules change a while back, they target your planeswalkers directly instead of targeting you and then redirecting. So Leyline doesn't protect your planeswalkers anymore. So it can actually be tough to, to stick something. But realistically, if you have Leyline and a pile of spot removal, like you're going to have so much time and then... You, you play a, a Jace the Mind Sculptor, tick it up. They have to spend two of their burn spells and like not everything targets Planeswalkers. And, you know, you just wear them down. Eventually play like a Stoneforge Mystic, get a Batter Skull, cast that, start attacking them with Colonnades, whatever. You just wear them down. Uh, and then All again, sounds like a fine plan to me. It, it is. It, it's, it's actually been awesome. And then on top of that, I also have a timely reinforcements just because, you know, respect. Like I, I care about beating this deck every single time I play it because... It is popular, it's good, and fairly easily accessible compared to the other things. So I think a a lot of people are pretty willing to pick it up. And then Leyline is also pretty good against Valakit. You just have to kill their creatures there too. And then, you know, they still have Valakits that can kill your Planeswalkers. So you basically have to do the same thing against them. So it would be easier if you were killing with uh, like Scapeshift or, you know, some combo control finisher, but it's, it's fine. It is basically fine. Uh, do you still have Spell Queller, Teferi Time Raveler in your deck? Yeah, I love them both. Me too. I was I was so blown away by those two cards in concert with each other. Yeah, combinations busted, and it's the reason I want to play one Restoration Angel in every version I play because I had one as well. Yeah, yeah. Once you start juggling Spell Queller, or even just like the first time you do it, really, like you you get so far ahead because their their spell is not coming back, and then. You have free reign to like play a sword and equip it. Or yeah, if you want to bounce your spell queller, then you get this counter spell back. Their spell's gone forever. You're up a card. And I, I just watched you absolutely decimate a mirror match opponent with that combination. Just every turn he, he was down a card, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, it was pretty incredible. Uh, those were the two cards I was really high on. The other card, I have some stuff to figure out about this list. I, I don't think I had my sideboard correct, and there were certainly some tweaks I could do in the main deck as well. I played Dreadhorde Arcanist. That was the chief difference between our decks. I was pleased, and it, it showed me a lot of potential. The, its ability to end the game very quickly came up a bunch. Rebuying your lightning bolts and your spot removal feels very, very good. I, I'm buying into the idea that maybe you don't have to splash. And if that's true, then this is just off the table. But in a world where we do want access to red mana, I, I just don't think people are showing that card enough respect right now. It has potential to be an important part of this archetype. Right. You're also playing this deck that it, its late game consists of equipment, right? So eventually yeah. you're going to be able to put a sword on a Dreadhorde Arcanist and start bl- flashing back helixes in addition to the other stuff. Absolutely. And then, I mean, you mentioned a card like Timely Reinforcements. Like if you can get access to that card out of your graveyard, things get very bonkers very quick. Um, things like a braid when you need artifact removal. I even right. played a Vandal Blast just so I could reliably have an artifact sweeper and get a removal spell from my Dreadhorde Arcanist. I think there's a lot of potential with the card and it's not a card I'm seeing explored by anyone right now. So I, I want to push on that a little bit further and see if I can find the optimal Arcanist list. But I, I Wanted to show respect to the idea that maybe you just don't need red. Maybe there's ways to get it done as just a blue-white deck. I think my Azorius list is good, and the people who have been playing Jeskai and doing well with it have been switching their lists up a decent amount on Magic Online because it's it's kind of hostile to some degree. Overall, I think the Azorius ones are just winning a lot more, too. Like, recently got second in... Uh, Magic Online PTQ, and those lists are all over the place and all very different. Yeah. But if you do want to do Dreadhorde Arcanist Stone Forge Mystic things, which I do think is worth exploring, I think you want to be Mardu. It crossed my mind. At, at this point, I was not willing to abandon the Spell Queller Teferi interaction. I needed to play more with that. But at some point, I was just like, well, there's a lot of good black one drops, and now I can play like. Fatal Push Thoughts, he's Inquisition, and I'm getting game against these other archetypes too. So there's still a lot of untapped territory with Stoneforge decks. Mardu maybe will be something interesting. Just just on the whole, Arcanist, it dominated Legacy for a period that's tapered off as the metagame has become very Ren and Six focused. But power level-wise, it's unquestionably there, and I'm still waiting for it to find a really sweet home in Modern. Yeah, the thing that happened with Arcanist in Modern is that it fit into these fairly aggressive and tempo-reliant blue-red shells, and then mm. the format adapted by just going bigger, having more Planeswalkers, right. playing Narset main deck, fewer creatures that die to the blue-red deck's cheap removal and stuff. So, Right. Tarmogoyf. Tarmogoyf came back. You're talking about Legacy yeah. right now. You said Modern. But oh, sorry, I, I, sorry. I get, I get your point. Yeah, they, things got bigger, and then the removal wasn't effective, and Arcanist really can't exist in that world. Well, you do still see it occasionally. But yeah, it felt like it was going to be the focal point of the format if you go back a few months. Well, I think they just need to figure out how to beat those decks. And maybe people weren't playing enough Winter Orbs or uh, Vapor Snags to beat Dark Depths. Or, you know, now you ha- you can't play three Chain Lightnings like we were doing. You know, you right. just ha- you have to play like some Dismembers or whatever to beat up on Tarmogoyf. So, yeah, you just have to adapt a little bit. And instead, I think a lot of people just jumped on the Ren and Six bandwagon. That card is 
140 tickets on Magic Online, and I haven't seen a, a blue red list in maybe a month. You know, I've I've yeah. seen one here or there, but that's about it. Yeah, it's been a minute, and I, I think it's it's not easy, but it is doable to shift the paradigm in those matchups. I mean, you were already like this blue red aggressive deck that played four basics and. You played Wasteland, but instead, because that matches up poorly against Ren and Six, you could play things like Back to Basics or Blood Moon. There's a lot of different stuff you could do, and people just didn't do that. Yeah, just gave up on it. But yeah, if if I want to play Arcanist in Modern, I'm super excited about playing it alongside a turn one discard spell to help protect it. Sounds pretty nice. Pretty good stuff there. Way to set up your mid game. You're the Mardu guy. Get to work on that one. Get me a list. I will. I will. I, I kind of like sold out of Magic Online and everyone's complaining about Mana Traders. And I don't really like it anyway because they just give you like different versions of stuff and your decks look hideous. So I'm mostly just like on a deck and then I'll play it until I want to switch decks and then I'll sell the deck and buy that. And obviously that's not the best way to live or whatever. That's just kind of what I got going on now. So what Jerry is saying is that if there's any card lending services no, out there no, that are familiar no. with our with our podcast that want to... You know, maybe help us out a little bit. Make sure we're able to do all the testing we need to get done. Why not shoot him a message? Shoot him an email. Shoot your shot. Do your thing, player. I don't know. I I would feel just like the biggest drama queen where I'm just like, you know, I want all of my cards to be the same version and <laughs> I don't want white border garbage and I don't want masterpiece garbage. You know, it seriously does impact how I feel when I'm playing. If I if I have to tutor for like a masterpiece sort of feast and famine, I'll just be mad. I'll be mad the entire time. I want to make fun of you, but uh, just recently I switched to really lean into the aesthetic nature of magic to get the versions of cards that made me happy. Things like foils, things like older versions of cards. And while it has not been kind to my wallet, it has definitely affected my enjoyment of the game. Do the things you love. Don't feel guilty about it. If you want all pretty matching cards and, uh, no white borders, then that's your thing. That's fine. You don't you don't have to feel bad about it. Like people are posting deck lists on Twitter now, and it's like, oh yeah, here's the you know Urza deck I've been playing, and Magic Online shows the deck as them not owning any of the cards. Right. So I just want to be like, liar, you're not playing that. You're not twelve and two or whatever. <laughs> but it's like obviously they're just using mana traders and had to return the deck. Right. And for the people who take the screenshots when they have the cards in their account, it's just like different lightning bolts and different lootings and the, the screenshot looks hideous. And I just would not want to share that with anyone. I don't want to be putting that, that ugliness on the internet, you know, too embarrassed to share your deck picks. Yeah, dude, exactly. I, I hold myself to a higher standard than that. Good for you. Anyway. Yeah. If anyone wants to deal with someone who will just incessantly whine at them, by all means, shoot we've got message. your man. Yeah. Anyway, moving on to tier 1.5. What is tier 1.5? Isn't that just a cop out? It is. It absolutely is. I, I guess tier tier 1.5 decks are decks that I, I think probably should have a home in tier one, but things have already started trending against them. That's where I'm at with these decks. And so we talked about how Burn is at some point going to start its march down this list. In my eyes, these are the decks that had a place in Tier 1 and have started that descent. Decks have appropriately adapted and are starting to punish these strategies just a little bit now. Well, let's talk about the Tier 1 decks, right? So like Burn is 
close to a flip against Stoneforge decks and against Wurza. And Wurza is very good against Stoneforge decks, as I noted, close to a flip against Burn, and very good against a lot of the Tier 1.5 and Tier 2 decks, which is why we think that Wurza is the number one deck. And then Stoneforge and Burn kind of have a similar matchup spread where they're good against lots of stuff. It's just the numbers across the board are weaker and figuring out how to beat Wurza is also just much, much more difficult. And then the tier 1.5 decks could be tier one decks, but they're just like strictly worse than the tier one decks by just a smidge. You know, it's like instead of being good in five matchups, they're only good in four or whatever. And that to me is the difference where it's like, yeah, these, these decks are like fairly well positioned. They're not bad. They're definitely better than tier two, but they are definitely not as strong as the tier one decks. Right. And in fact, we disagree actually on this slot. Our our list was basically in alignment, except this one particular deck, my tier 1.5 consists of only one deck. I would have Titan shift there right now as the tier 1.5 deck, which I think is like, just sitting just below those three decks, a little bit worse matchup spread and a little bit more effective hate coming out of sideboards at this point. Well, the other deck that we have in the tier 1.5 list right now, though, is Tron. I actually think Tron has already fallen down to tier two. I think Tron has some real matchup problems right now. Okay, so Titan Shift, if it were up to me, would just be in tier one. And okay. Tron could live in tier two if we just decide to obliterate 1.5 because it's nonsense. Maybe that's what we should do. Let's officially change it. Titan Shift is now a tier one deck. Tron is now a tier two deck. Tier 1.5 is gone and eliminated. Yeah, so Titan Shift has a similar matchup spread to Tron, except it's just better in more places. And then there there are matchups like Burn, where according to the Dallas results from Mox Insights, Titan Shift uh, got beat up by Burn pretty badly, but you can change that. You can fix that. Yeah, you just go hard into the obstinate Bayloth camp and a bunch of other life gain spells that you have access to, and you will make the matchup better. It will have a definite impact on what's going on. And I, I don't think Tron has that same flexibility. Like right. I, I tried. I worked on Tron and I know. It it didn't come together. You mentioned, well, you could go hard in Worm Coil Engine and Thrag Tusk. I played a main deck Thrag Tusk and I maxed out on Worm Coil Engine and I got obliterated by Burn. And yeah. it just wasn't even close. And I, I didn't expect that I had solved the matchup. I'm like, okay, I hope I have a 40% now, but right. I don't even think I got that far. And, you know, I used to do like green black with collective brutality. And quite frankly, that's just. It's not real. You don't actually influence the matchup all that much. You might think you are, but it's just not a card you can reliably cast. And you remember the times it feels really good and seems like it did something. But in most instances, you've just made your deck much, much worse for very little gain. So I wouldn't go down that route. I think it's better than scooping. And the the thing for uh, our, our tier 1.5 decks, our big mana decks, is both of these decks can and probably should just sideboard for Leyline of Sanctity. Yeah, you could look at those setups. Maybe that's the way you just answered this burn problem right now. If these decks aren't going to adapt, then that certainly punishes them. At some point, they will pick up Destructive Revelry again. and Sure, but they're not there yet. They're not there yet. If if you play it this weekend, one of these decks with Leyline, you're going to beat up on burn. Maybe your list gets published. Maybe it doesn't. And if it does get published and everyone adapts to it, they'll adapt to it the second week. 
And then by the third week, people will be like, okay, Leyline is a thing that people are playing now. Now I have to play Sanctity and they'll, they'll have it for like the fourth week or whatever. So like you get a bunch of good weeks in just by having Leyline in your deck and Tron and Titan Shift are the exact decks where you can play some creature removal to kill their persistent sources of damage. The burn spells basically have no target and then you just go over the top of them in a big way. And you don't have to play like this long, weird game like the Azorius decks do. Right. So it's it's basically perfect. Like, Leyline is exactly what Tron and Titan Shift should be doing, especially since, you know, from the Titan Shift side of things, like, Leyline is just good against Jund, and it's right. okay against Death Shadow, depending on what version they're playing. And then it's less so again for Tron, because, like, Tron already just smashes Jund. Uh, Death Shadow is uh, a, a lot tougher, obviously, and Leyline probably doesn't even help that much because it's more so like death shadow stubborn denial that's the problem but for mm-hmm. titan shift it's huge it's so good and people need to do it more yeah i'm gonna give you this one on the titan shift side and i think that's exactly why titan shift can make an argument to get into tier one but tron has bigger problems it's not just about burn for tron i think these stoneforge decks having picked up four force of negation in a lot of instances have just fundamentally changed that matchup and they don't even have to go as far as field of ruin anymore they can find game plans that aren't solely focused around that card uh but a lot of them have that card as well and that's another problem that tron has to overcome and i just think you used to feel so favored in any deck that wasn't um, against any deck that wasn't immediately trying to kill you as tron right i don't think that's the case anymore i think all of these decks have picked up very reasonable tools uh, even something like Death Shadow that you mentioned, like I just don't feel that bad playing the matchup on the Death Shadow side anymore. It's, it's fine. You find ways to win. And Humans was always tight. And it's just like, where are my good matchups as Tron? I'm picking up a bunch of 40 to 45% matchups and I'm just over talking myself into the deck. Uh, I've done it too many times now. And I basically have one good GP result to show for it and a bunch of absolute flops surrounding it. And I, I just don't think Tron has the tools anymore. Now, we'll have to reevaluate that once we get Once Upon a Time and see how that changes things. But it's kind of the same thing I talked about with Neoform, where I think the deck just has bigger problems than its consistency at this point. It doesn't line up well against the rest of the format. And I'm just kind of off it right now. And I, it wouldn't surprise me to even see it fall out of Tier 2 at some point. Well, everyone who plays Tron at this point knows that they should just mulligan to 3. Right. And... That's going to lead to a higher turn three Tron just on average. And that means that people are Troning on turn three and still losing. Yes. So, so yes, they, they have bigger problems because that is the best thing that they can possibly do is Tron on turn three and play some big card. Right. And, and it used to just feel like a guarantee and it absolutely does not anymore. Right. I, I mean, you... You play like a worm coil. There's more path to exiles in the format. There's Teferi Time Raveler. You know, even if you Karn them, if if you're on the draw, like, I don't know, it, it still might just be too slow, right? Like they could just flash in a spell queller, start start pinking it. And then uh, if if you had to like Karn Minus to kill their Stoneforge or whatever, they have a Sword of Feast and Famine that's probably just going to connect because Tron is very removal light and... That's that's the dream. You get to if you get a matchup where you know that you can just connect with Sword of Feast and Famine whenever you want and create this huge tempo swing, maybe mana advantage, like it's just over. I'm right there with you. And that's why Tron is moving on down presently in tier two. And like I said, wouldn't be shocked if it goes lower than that. So 
I wanted Tron to be up there kind of based on the Mox Insights data, which I didn't really understand, where they just spend the article kind of talking crap about Tron, but yet had it very high as a weighted matchup percentage. And I assume that is based on metagame percentage and the metagame having a lot of matchups that are favorable for Tron. So like even though Tron's overall win rate is poor, it, it is supposed to be good or higher or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I, I don't know what that interpretation is. I, I'm also not quite sure where you're getting that, quite frankly. I mean the only data I'm seeing here is on this metagame share graph where they're talking a 45% overall win percentage for Tron. The lowest of any widely played deck by a good margin, too. Oh, it maybe it is that Jund is so popular that <laughs> Tron's numbers just get propped up even by that? I don't know. Where are you pulling the weighted win percentage number from? Uh, in the first graph on the right-hand side, it has the weighted win percentage number. Oh, so I don't I don't think that's what that is. I, that's not, uh, like, the placement of the deck on this graph is not representative of their weighted win percentage. The weighted win percentage is, that that's just a color wheel showing you that if it's this color, it has an 80% win percentage. Oh, that's individual box, not scale. Yeah, yeah you're, you're reading the graph wrong. Okay. There's, that, there's not much in favor of Tron anywhere in this data. Word. That makes a lot more sense. I mean, it did go 6-0 against Jund. That was it. And it was that, like... That matchup remains good. <laughs> I think yeah, it always shocker. will. But, I mean, yeah. you're, you're like a pretty decent favorite against Wurza and you smashed Jund and then... You know, slight favorite against humans, uh, slight favorite against prowess based on these numbers. And it was like, oh, well, maybe, you know, it just means that based on metagame share, Tron should actually be a good deck, even though it's, you know, losing a bunch. But yeah, if the if the win percentage was 45%, then it wouldn't make sense why the weighted win percentage would be 80. It just means for yeah. that matchup. Yep. Yeah, I, I think the deck's matchups are mostly in the toilet at this point. And even like the field at large, you're looking at it going 12 and 15 against non-meta decks. Like that's that's really bad. Tron is supposed to keep those decks in check for the most part. Right. Uh, but and it's it's not effectively doing so anymore. Yeah, I mean, the non-meta decks are like collector oof force of negation decks, probably. Like a lot of sure, them. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Uh, how did Tron do against bands? I'm going to look at that. Two and two. Okay. That is worth mentioning is that all, all of these sample sizes are very, very small. And I, I'm actually yeah, of course, reading of course. Tron is 03 against Band, if I'm looking at this correctly. No, it's in fact. Okay. <laughs> this is a difficult chart to read. That is what we have established in this analysis, is that it's very, very difficult to pull information from. I I I trust the fine folks at Mox Insights, and I was reading this graph, and I was just like, yo... You know, they're they're math people. I guess I'll trust them, even though this doesn't make a lot of sense to my underdeveloped brain or whatever. And I guess now right. that I look at it closer, like the weighted win percentage graph just like continues going south. So it sure. doesn't even like line up with the chart exactly. So <laughs> I don't know. I just I it was the first thing that came to mind. And I was just like, yeah, OK, I'll trust them. Yeah, don't don't trust Tron. Nobody play it. Everyone stop playing Tron. That's it. It's over. We had our run. Let's not do this anymore. Do you still own all your Tron cards? Can you just sell them at this point? Uh, you know I never sell anything. So of course I still own them. I, I would never get rid of my Antiquities Tron lands. That's just not happening under any circumstances. Oh, yeah. You might end up uh, playing Core Tapper Tron at some point. So. Of course. You never know what's going to happen. Or maybe Mono Blue Tron. Anything's on the table. But uh, 
What about this? I have I have a proposition for you. What if you just have me hold on to them and I only relinquish them if you give me a good case? No, no. Look, I, you don't even have to go that far. I, I am not planning on registering Tron uh, in any tournament anytime soon. The, the version you may actually want to take away from me are my Magic Online Tron cards. Because a lot of the time mm. when I'm just like, oh, I haven't done any testing and you know, I just happen to have a few spare minutes and I could register for this PTQ. And if we get on a hot streak, we'll keep it going. If I lose round one, we'll just pack it in. I just put Tron into the mix and then I inevitably lose round one. And I'm like, okay, well, my day's free. Time to go do something else. So those might be the ones you want to take away from me. Yeah, hate it. Absolutely hate it. Right. Sell those. <laughs> They're gone. Good. I appreciate it. All right. Moving on to tier two, we have seven different archetypes, which I think we can collapse into six. We have Devoted Druid, Humans, Eldrazi Tron, Mardu Dash Shadow, and Grixis Dash Shadow, which I think are functionally similar. Mm, I, I would push back against that analysis a little bit, but that's fine. We can move past that. Functionally similar. And then we have Jund and the mm-hmm. last one. And I'm surprised that you would put this in tier two because well, I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I think it is legit. Uh, this is five color Niv-Mizzet. Yeah. At, at some point, you just have to be like, well, the data is starting to stack up. And it's time for me to actually put aside my biases and think about this deck seriously. And after now winning the modern playoff and thinking about how the metagame continues to slow down and things are hitting this more glacial pace, I I just think at some point you have to respect what this deck is doing. And it's winning a lot of games of Magic right now. And it's got this powerful, powerful card advantage. And it plays some of the best cards in the format. And... I'm kind of in. I, I just I just think this is a valid deck that we have to start respecting. All decks go through this process, right? Where we laugh at them a little bit and then you go, oh, actually, this might be something. I, I am at the point now with five color Niv Mizzet where I'm like, okay, this might be something. Yeah, shout out to uh the I think it Faithless Brewing podcast. Dan Schriever is uh one of my old, old school homies from Minnesota, like when I was grinding way back in the day okay. and just an incredible deck builder. If he didn't build the original version of this deck, he definitely worked on it a lot and certainly popularized it. And I've, I've had that Twitter account tweet at me, you know, just being like, yo, give us some respect. So like this, this is it. This is official. Definitely after the modern challenge went down and I have the fire 12 would the tournament with their build of the Niv-Mizzet deck. It's like, yeah, you just can't deny it anymore. You know, nope. like this, this is a, a legit thing, even though deck looks like complete nonsense, but a lot of the gold cards are some of the best cards in modern and Arkham's Astrolabe is a busted magic card. So, you know, what are we doing? Like, obviously this, this deck has legs. Yeah. Format's gotten to a place where I believe in it. Props to all the people who, Worked on the deck. I think a lot of it was like fortuitous and there's a lot of stubbornness for like playing this into a world of is it Phoenix seems laughable or Hogak seems very silly. But if you wait long enough, they'll come for everyone else's deck and then you'll have a valid tier two contender. And that's where we're at right now with five color. Uh, So speaking of faithless brewing podcast, they are at faithless MTG on Twitter. And this is relevant to our podcast. 
they they do this stuff all the time. So if you're interested in like crazy, probably potentially busted magic ideas, follow them because this is a tweet that they made uh, yesterday. Turn one, Mistress Bobble, Mox, Emery. Turn two, mm-hmm. Jeskai Ascendancy, Sack Bobble, Tap yep. Emery, Recast Bobble, Trigger Ascendancy, Untap Repeat. Boom. Yeah, there's there's a lot of infinite combos, and that's one I've seen floating around. Uh, there's like a Meriden common that Liam was tweeting about, where it's like when you cast an artifact, untap a creature. So there you go. That's infinite bobble triggers. There's lots of them, and something's going to happen with that card for sure. And Mistress Bobbles are like 35 on Magic Online because of Urza and to yep. some extent Death Shadow. So that's not going to get better anytime soon. Could be a pressure point for the format. Like it needs another one. Add that to the $140 Ren and Sixes, I guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that keeps climbing too. Anyway, Urza's legit. Death Shadow is. I, I just lump them together because they are disruptive aggro decks with big creatures. Okay. So they okay. get to shrug off a lightning bolt. You need things like Path to Exile, Celestial Purge, whatever to beat them. I, I can't speak to Mardu's matchup spread to actually compare that, but I imagine that they are fairly similar. Yeah, it's probably a question of whether you prefer blue disruption or black disruption. And obviously the Grixis version has both blue and black disruption, but if Stubborn Denial is a strong card, you almost certainly want to be in the Grixis camp. And to me, it does seem like a strong card right now, but I guess if things are trending away from Tron and moving towards Titan Shift and there's other adjustments going on in the format, I understand why you're making the case for Mardu over Grixis. And also life gain elements as well. If Burn's a big thing, okay, then there's an, there's white cards to solve that problem for you. So Yeah, and and for the Jun matchup, you have Ranger Captain of Eos and... Right just more grindy elements in general. So Mardu kind of gets the nod there. Uh, certainly yeah. if you're going up against five color Nimbizit, you want to be able to grind. Yeah. And so you see why things are leaning in the way of Mardu Death Shadow. Again, another deck that's continuing to put up some very solid results. And I think has in that respect in the tiers you slot. Yep. Eldrazi Tron, I think is mostly pretty bad, but maybe better than normal Tron, at least a little bit because you can like disrupt and have a clock. I just think it's such a low bar right now to compare to Tron, but uh, I, know. I agree. I, know. I, I think it's better. I think it's better than regular Tron right now. And I, I'm not sure where that leaves it on the whole, but I agree with you. At what point are we going to start jamming Karn the great creator back in every single deck in modern again? Uh, it didn't work out too well the last time we did that, but I understand why now is a good time to answer that. Ask that question. Uh, like I've always said about Karn, the great creator, you have to be on the battlefield early or it is a underwhelming magic card. And jamming it in every deck generally does not work. Playing it in Tron, I've never, ever liked it. Playing it in Amulet, uh, I thought I liked it for like half a second and then its flaws became very quickly apparent to me. You have to have a very focused game plan. I, I like Eldrazi Tron as far as that goes. I think it's probably the best Karn, the great creator deck. So it's got that going for it. But I'm not sure how much how much more wide you're supposed to go with that. Word. I, I think Noble Hierarch decks are the best home for the card because you have the acceleration to play it early enough to the point where it can actually cripple Urza. And mm-hmm. you are probably playing a decent amount of green creatures to protect it. I like that aspect as far as like, you know, jamming it in Devoted Druid and jamming it in all these big mana decks. I absolutely hate that. I do think that it should be showing up in more places than just Eldrazi Tron. Yeah, we'll have to see if it can 
chisel out a little home for itself. Thus far, it's been a little underrepresented in this new format. I will say that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, especially with Wurza as the top deck, right? Yep. And what else? We have humans kind of has Tron issues where just the the format has sort of passed it by. You know, humans is this disruptive aggro deck that was good when people were kind of trying to turn through you. You know, they're playing like Storm or Ad Nauseum, things like Mm -hmm. that. And now it's like big mana, lock you out, combo kill you with Urza. You have Stoneforge's Mystic Batterskull. You have Burn, just like humans doesn't interact with these things very well at all. And maybe there is another creature deck that can kind of rise up and do the humans thing, but better. Uh, I'm not really seeing it just because the format is pulled in a lot of different directions. So I don't know exactly what that means. Maybe just, you know, noble hierarch or creature synergy based decks are just not going to make it. I'm not sure, but I I do agree that the humans disruption is not, the disruption for this format right now. They have a lot of vulnerabilities. New prints probably don't fix that. I was very high on Prince Charming previously. I I do think it has a slot in humans, but again, it's not answering that problem. It's not fixing the present issue of none of my disruptive spells matter. So maybe it has to be a more classic death and taxes type build that we go to, or maybe it has to be just spirits. Maybe spirits has some room to come back and you're supposed to lean on spell queller and to fairy. Like, like I said, that combination, very impressive. Maybe it's something spirits could look to utilize as well, but yeah, humans definitely trending down right now. I think precariously holding on to its slot in tier two. Yeah. Spirits could be okay. I, I mostly look at it like, you know, I want, I want to play Stoneforge mystic uh, instead of the humans cards and then mm-hmm. you kind of went to Death and Taxes. And for me, I would much rather prefer to have Noble Hierarch in my Death and Taxes deck. And then at that point, I would just want Teferi and Spellqueller. So that's sort of how I ended up on Bant and how I think a creature deck could be tuned to compete in this metagame. But either way, Humans, Thalia's Lieutenant just doesn't really do a whole lot. Can you do something with Elvish Reclaimer in this format? It's starting to really pick up steam in Legacy, and it's been a very impressive card. And granted, you have Wasteland there, and that's always going to change the paradigm a little bit. But when you're talking about Bant creature decks, we both said we would love to live in a world where you could Elvish Reclaim away a Flagstones of Troikar. I don't think we're there right now, but we're getting closer to that world. And I would love if Elvish Reclaimer is something we could do. I would too. And the initial article I wrote on Stoneforge Mystic had a bunch of Elvish Reclaimer decks in it. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are like some Naya decks popping up on Magic Online. And some of them have Wild Nakadal. And it's just like, why? Reclaimer's yeah. just bigger. Yeah, way better. Way better Magic card right now. One, that card is one land away from being very, very good in Modern. Yeah, but I mean, there's also just like a lot of different stuff too where it's like night of the reliquary and things like that so they have to be careful about that life from the loam too no very true very true and then the last deck on tier two devoted druid the way these decks are built now are just keep jamming devoted druids until one sticks and that plan is decent but not great because i do think that there are Board positions that you get into where you finally try and jam a druid and you're you're too far behind or like maybe you don't have the other piece or they don't even have to kill it. They can counter your vizier or just like bounce your devoted druid or 
you know, hit you with a sort of fire and ice on a flyer or something and kill your thing. And then you just can't win. So it does its thing. It does its, it does its thing well, but I don't think that that's good enough. So how would you like to adapt the deck? Are you looking to take it in a more, I guess, fair direction? Do you want more interactivity out of your creatures? Do you think Once Upon a Time solves any of the issues? When I built my Once Upon a Time Devoted Druid deck, I leaned super hard on the combo, just basically trying to maximize it as quickly as possible in as many scenarios as possible, having as many copies of both Vizier and Devoted Druid as I possibly can. We see some people go the other way and play a single copy of yeah. Vizier of Remedies. And I'm I'm not sure which direction to take this deck in. It does feel like it should be better than it presently is. I agree. And I think Stoneforge came out and just sort of confused everyone. People wanted to try different builds. And I don't think the mid-range versions of the Devoted Druid combo deck are strong enough right now, just based on what the top decks are and what the overall matchup spread looks like, even in in the Tier 2 category. So I would want to just cut the Stoneforge stuff, go back to playing four copies of Postmortem Lunge, and you know, people try and path your Devoted Druid or whatever, you just put some counters on it to kill it so it doesn't get exiled. And then right. you try and post-mortem lunge it back and play Vizier on the same turn and just combo off that way. And yeah, you get to play Eladomri's Call, Finale of Devastation, and then whichever tertiary piece you want. And one thing that I do want to try are the versions that kind of pop up every now and then that have definitely Eldritch Evolution, sometimes Neoform, and then they can either sideboard or main deck the Allosaurus Rider in a Gristle Brand package. I think like that's another way to go about that is just do something more busted. Have this sort of backwards combo where you don't necessarily need anything to live for a turn. Well, Once Upon a Time will certainly help that approach. So yeah, this deck continues to evolve. It, it underwhelms me right now, but I look at it as something that has the potential to be a top tier contender at some point when we get it all figured out. Yeah, it's scary. It's gotten so many good prints and all the cards yeah. are so cheap. But even the way the format is now where just some of the blue white decks are playing four spell snare, you know, you, you just can't really do anything about that. Mm, very true. So you need the lunges. They got to come back. Well, I think that's going to do it for our modern discussion. And every week at the end of the show, we solicit the fine folks in our discord for questions uh, sometime Sometimes they're loosely related to the topic of the show, and in this case, it is not related at all. But uh, the question that we select, the thing that is most interesting, the thing that we want to discuss the most, uh, will get sent an Arena Deckless pin, which is basically only available through this. So uh, get in our Discord, ask us some sweet questions, get our brains working, and you can get a free pin. And the question we... Decided on this week comes from Robert Taylor, a.k.a. Fire Shoes, who follows basically every single Magic player on Twitter. I have to imagine his feed is just a complete mess. But Robert asks, there is complete apathy about the MPL weekly events and players have expressed their desire to see more consistent coverage of GPs. What should WotC do to make the MPL into quote unquote must see TV do you think we will ever get back to the point of having GP streams most weekends? And Robert also included a poll from MPL member Jean-Emmanuel Dupre, who asked, what would you rather watch at the weekend? Please also say why. I'm genuinely curious. The options were MPL weekly coverage or GP coverage. 
It got 1,764 votes, and GP coverage won by 96%. I have never seen such a lopsided Twitter poll. Especially with that many results, right? Yeah, kind of uh, jaw-dropping, absolutely jaw-dropping response. And Robert's a great person to ask this question, by the way, because Robert does guerrilla coverage of basically every single PTQ. Oftentimes, he does it in one of our channels in our Discord and just does play-by-play for PTQ Top 8s, yeah. usually at Magic Fest. And it's incred- It's such a great resource. People who have friends competing in a PTQ Top 8 and really want to know, is my friend going to qualify for this PT? Robert is there providing play-by-play. Really cool thing that Robert does. So yeah. I, he certainly has the right to ask this question. Yeah, Robert is absolute gas. There, There's no debating that. It. The thing that also strikes me about Dupree's tweet is that think about what his Twitter audience is like, right? He's a Magic Pro League member. Up until this year, he was not streaming or really creating content as far as I know. Right. It has to be the most enfranchised people who are following him on Twitter and answering this poll. And yet they still prefer GP coverage to... The MPL stuff, like the the best of the best playing every week. What does that say? Uh, it says that we have misevaluated what people want out of Magic coverage, quite frankly. It, it's not about seeing the absolute best. It's, it's about seeing very good players. Certainly, that's part of it. And if you're doing well at a GP and competing in later rounds and being featured on coverage, you're a good Magic player. And... That's quite frankly good enough for people and they don't need to see the absolute pinnacle of the game. When it pops up, it's nice. People get excited about those feature matches, which have, you know, two really well-known pros, but it's it's not just about seeing that difference because quite frankly, a very large percentage of the viewership can't recognize the difference. It's just not meaningful, the difference between a match of two people in round 15 of a GP and two MPL players. It, I'm not saying there isn't a difference. There is. There absolutely is. But most viewers cannot recognize that difference. So if there's going to be buy-in for MPL events, I think it has to come from the personalities. And we don't get to see a lot of that. It's just like not something that is a focus of coverage. And the other point where people really bond to their chosen players is through commonality. So, oh, this player is from my hometown or in the case of like fighting games, it's like, oh, this player mains the same character as me. Or in the case of League of Legends, this player plays the same position as me and mains the same champion. All those points of commonality really matter. And you can't get that in Magic, really. Like there's there's some rare exceptions. Like obviously there's the Craig Wesco types who only play one deck style. But MPL members for the most part are just going to play the best deck. And you're not going to get a lot of commonality and connection in deck choice. Again, I, I forget if I talked about this here, but a few weeks ago I tweeted, I'm pretty sure the MPL players should be playing Brawl. And I know that sounds so stupid. Like I'm not blind <laughs> to how dumb that sounds, but at least then there's a point of commonality where someone can go, oh, I also play Teferi as my Brawl deck, or I also have this commander and you do a commander draft and you play that throughout the season and you can change your deck on a week-to-week basis, but you always have to have that commander and you're locked into that commander for a few weeks. And it at least gives people something to bond over because right now nobody cares about the stakes and 
like I said, unquestionably, these are the best magic players in the world playing magic against each other. There's a lot to learn, a lot really in franchise players can take away, but they just don't care for the most part. And you're not going to make them care about that. And this poll shows that to a devastating extent. And you have to find some hook and it can be higher stakes or it can be, you know, a a unique format, but just playing standard with deck lists that are quite frankly, usually a week behind because of recording demands. And in some cases, these matches are recorded. That's a really, really tough sell. And I appreciate the coverage. I enjoy the MPL coverage for the most part. Uh, I do think there's things that could be done better, but this is a resource that is basically made for me. It's, it's the type of magic I really appreciate, but that's not the same experience everyone else is having right now. And if you want it to be a large scale thing that really justifies the investment, I do think some changes are absolutely needed. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do agree that players need to form a connection with the players in the MPL. And it's basically up to the MPL to do that via branding in different ways either through like the content they make or their streams or whatever. And uh, take, take like Asian Avenger, right? Not an MPL member, but like popular streamer. And he's, he's just Esper guy. That's just it. You know, he streams a lot. He, he played in the mythic invitational, just mono Esper all the time. And all the Esper diehards are going to tune in to watch him do his thing. And I think that is a thing that is very important when you are trying to attract eyeballs. So things are a little bit different now. Like you said, though, everyone will just, play Scapeshift and then play Vampires and then play Kethys and just whatever it comes down to. Yeah, it's almost not fair. These players don't have the chance to, they can't express themselves in that fashion. They have to play the best deck. Right, because they're playing for a thing that matters to them, but people don't really understand how to quantify that thing because it's like, okay, you get a buy into day two, but like, What does that mean? You know, like they are actually playing for real stakes, but it's just not grokkable by everyone. So they may as effectively just be playing for nothing. And then at that point, you're just like a random fandom legends tournament and fandom gets more views than them. Yeah. Uh, Well, I think fandom has some personalities that can lean into their branding a little bit and they can find points of commonality with their viewers and you you can take a lark on a deck choice at fandom legends because there isn't the same almost incredible pressure it's just a one-off and you either make a little bit of money or you don't and that's fine you can you can live with those stakes but when you're trying to secure a future mpl spot those buys are going to matter a tremendous amount for day two of a what i forget what we're even calling them now players championship is that what we're calling them players tour Player store, whatever we want to call them presently. I I think there's no, there are all the arena ones, mythic invitationals. I think that's what it is. Yeah, there's they might still be mythics. Who knows? Who knows? Regardless, (laughs) that's not the point here. And I I don't think you can just fix this with stakes, by the way. I think if these were like thousand dollar show matches, it wouldn't do anything either. Like people still are not going to invest in that because there's this point of separation between the MPL and joe magic player right now or jill magic player right now and you're just not connecting in the same way when you watch a gp that can be your friend or it's been you before or it's been someone you know through your local store and you can you can really relate to those things the mpl feels bigger than that or you you think it could be you at some point right 
MPL does right. not have that. I mean, it's closer Correct. now, but it was definitely just like, what the hell? Like, I, I will never be here. Why? I, I can't even imagine myself in this position, you know? Right. And it's it still feels, even knowing the steps, it still feels, you know, even for someone like me, who is at least a decent Magic player and who has played on Pro Tours and has some success on that level, it still feels basically unachievable. So imagine how it feels to FNM player who hasn't tasted that success yet. It's it's still way too big, way too far off. So I, I don't know the cleanest way to solve this problem. I think it involves some larks and doing something almost crazy like, like the brawl thing. I, I don't know if you should take that idea, but something that just gives a point of interest and commonality, or it takes a complete restructure of this league system. And honestly, I, I don't think this league system has to exist going forward. It doesn't seem like one of the highlights of the new package. There's a lot of good things to like in this new system. The MPL league features don't really feel like one of them to me. I think if this just went away tomorrow, no one would be all that affected by it. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it seems like they are sinking time and resources into this definitely not getting the returns that they wanted. I mean, if, if your only options are continue basically doing the same thing or do nothing, I would highly advise them to just do nothing. Right. Right. I hope it can be saved and we can find an interesting broadcast to make out of it. But uh, a lot of things have to change about it to get there. To Robert's second part of his question, do you ever think we get back to the point of having GP streams most weekends? No, I don't. I think that's over and done with. And I, I think that's sad. I understand why it's the case, but I think that era of magic is over. I, I just don't think it's coming back. Damn. Uh, I was going to try and be a little bit more hopeful, but. Okay. Tell us why. Tell you what, tell us why you think there's a chance we could get GP streams most weekends again. Well, they're, you know, kind of listening to feedback and making changes. It's not quick, but. I mean, how much do you think they spend on the MPL weekly stuff? Less than a GP stream. Obviously, obviously. And also like they're probably not paying for the GP streams, right? Like that's a channel thing. Right. But regardless, they can, you know, if if there are people in house who want to go to GPs and do commentary, it's like Watsi can do things to help facilitate that. I don't think, you know, viable commentator crew is the thing that is stopping CFP. No, I think it's, it's just, it's not, it's move. It's moving the equipment. It's moving people. It's the fact that GPs are global in nature. Yeah, and now it's you a have lot to choose to send people to this one and not that one. And I understand one of the benefits about this new arena structure is that you get to localize where you're working out of. And the fact that you can work out of the same studio over and over is a tremendous boon to keeping operating costs down and to making basically weekly coverage financially viable, but you still need to provide a product that people are buying into. And, you know, maybe fandom really paved the way here. Maybe that's what you need to be doing. And it should be online arena GPs as opposed to this this MPL thing that you're focusing on the weekend. And you keep your same crew and you head to the same studio and you do exactly what fandom does. And Look, I'm not just putting them over because they keep inviting me and I really enjoy their tournaments, but I, I really think they've made a really nice product and one that is making inroads in the community that people enjoy. It, we see it talked about a lot 
in our Discord, people respect it. People respect the players. People respect the outcomes. And they respect the metagame developments that come from Fandom Legends more than they do the MPL. I will tell you that straight up. Whether that's justified or not, I promise you, if you're just talking about hard metrics, how much attention, how much traffic it gets, Fandom Legends gets more than the MPL in our server, without a doubt. Yeah, of course. I mean, part of it is that it's more visible, but also... When fandom goes live, you know because 16 streamers are tweeting about it. Mm-hmm. When MPL goes live, the players that played in it are just like, you know, it's over and done with. I played in this thing already. They don't know if they're going to get shown on camera. There's no reason for them to say, hey, tune in and watch this. So right. fandom already is just backpacking off of 16 like fairly popular people's audiences. But it also goes to the community thing too and and people you know participating. Yes. Like again, we're talking about our server and I've played it a bunch. Kanye has played it a bunch. Uh, Covert Go Blue has played it a bunch. Zach Brown has played it a bunch. All these folks are in our server. So it's people that are regularly interacting with the community and that our fans feel like they have a close connection to. And that's not to say we don't have MPL players in our server as well. There's certainly plenty of those it's it just isn't resonating in the same way though and i i i wish it was i'll say that straight up i i really wish it was making more inroads but fandom's winning like heads up right now so that's that's bad so maybe this is neither here nor there but i do feel like there is a a good comparison to make between fandom and something like gp reed duke where granted gp reed duke went over super well uh, because it's Reed and he has a huge following. People love him, but also he went deep in the tournament and he lost playing mm-hmm. for top eight. And like people got to follow his journey and cheer him on. And like, you know, how sick would it be if you just got to you know, like, re- that was the tournament that Reed won or whatever. And you just got to watch every single game that he played. Yeah. People get to follow that journey and they get to kind of follow the journey on fandom too, because you can tune in and watch anyone's stream. Uh, you get to see all the games that they play. They, get to see those players advance too, where it's like, all right, this person's 2-0, now they're 3-0, now they're 4-0, all right, they're in top four, whatever. And for the MPL stuff, it's like, uh, well, Carlos beat BBD, and you don't get to see any of the gameplay or anything, and also this is uh, not live, so it's not like you have any reason to like reach out to BBD and ask him like, how his tournament's going or whatever, right? It's like, you don't get to follow any of it because it's it's not live, it's not the same thing. Yeah, the feel is different. I, my intention in answering this question is not to bury the event. It's something I very much want to succeed and hope finds a way to succeed. But I, I don't see a clear path forward with the way things are presently set up. So I hope we see some setup shakeups. And I hope this is something that does get traction and does succeed. And it's new. So I'm willing to always give rope for something new and give the people in charge room to try stuff out and figure out ways to make it work. Sometimes your first shot just doesn't get there. And this is, we're kind of on the second shot now, but this is still a very early iteration of this MPL thing. And granted fandom just like kind of hit it out of the park with their first approach, but things didn't go quite as smoothly as here. I still have hope that it will get there and become something that I really do want to tune in for every single weekend. Well, you're kind of already there. I mean, you're locked into a four hour show where you get to watch two matches of high-level people playing Magic against each other, you know? Yeah. But they should take note because 1,764 people who are the the exact target demographic for the MPL Weekly Show, 
96% of them said they would rather watch GPs instead. Figure out why that is and fix it. Watsi is typically very good at sending out surveys and that sort of thing. And please, dear God, do that. Yeah, this is a survey you don't want to go under the radar. One of the reasons I wanted to answer this question is because I I know this will help spur more discussion around it. People would rather see GP coverage right now. So either give back GP coverage or figure out a way to fix this huge disparity. Or both, whatever. (laughs) Both would be nice. Both is Perfect world, we'll take both. Yeah, yeah, both is good. More things. Give us give us a two for one, please. It's Yeah, it's kind of like a three for one at this point. Right. Get us in the adventure mode. We're, we're going to be having a lot of two for ones. Just set us up early. That's true, man. All right, sign us out. We done. That's game. Good luck.